0: Life Audio Hey, Dr. Bill Sinyard here with Gospel Rant Podcast. Thanks for listening in. Uh, Thank you for letting other people know about it. Uh, Pass it on. uh, Pass it on through social media. We appreciate it. I'm sure that people will thank you. We're going verse by verse through the Song of Songs, the greatest gospel presentation in the entire Old Testament. If you haven't been following us now, you can check out earlier podcasts uh, on the Song of Songs uh, wherever you listen to podcasts. You won't regret it. We are in movement one still of this seven-movement, highly-structured collection of ancient Hebrew poetry. In the very center of this movement— Verse 15 of chapter 1, the groom looks at his bride, stunned, and exclaims in the Hebrew, Hanak Yafa Rayati Hanak Yafa. It's one of those biblical moments that takes our breath away. It means, look at you, beautiful. My beloved, look at you, beautiful. It's guttural, it's visceral, it's not even a complete sentence. It's the groom apparently trying to say the right words to maybe kind of express everything he feels towards his unlikely bride. People, this is God speaking today to you and me. If you're a Jesus follower, if the Spirit is inside of you, I don't know about you, but I could hear that again today and tomorrow. And often, frankly, the Queen is a picture, a metaphor, a trope for who we are when God's love finds uh, us, when God's love for the unlovable finds us, the unloved, it doesn't leave us there. As we'll see, it's transformative more than we know. But just to be clear, she's us, and this is where God finds us today, tomorrow, and the next day, to one degree or another. He finds us strangled in shame. Well, do you want to see what God's transforming love can do? Welcome to the Gospel Rant. Just sit back, relax, let me do most of the work. You can always contact me in dialogue, I love it, bill at gospel-app.com. But in the meantime, sit back and let the love of God wash over you. Uh, I'm sure you could use it. Jesus paid for that 2,000 years ago. Okay? But first, a word from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. We're at Song of Songs, chapter 1, verse 7. We're in the middle of movement number one of seven movements. Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock and where you rest your sheep at midday, why should I be like a veiled woman beside the flocks of your friends? Well, to graze has a sexual double entendre. The king was certainly not out doing the shepherding thing. That would be... Inappropriate. It'd be like Mark Zuckerberg trimming the hedges at Facebook or uh, President Biden cleaning up the lawn. It's better imagined as a euphemism for sex, for intimacy, for intercourse. Shepherds had a horrible reputation. And remember, Israel is a semi arid desert. They would take long midday siestas because it was so hot, and prostitutes would do booming business at the tents of the shepherds in the field. So, this dialogue is an emotional venting of uh, paranoia of the, of the bride, the queen, the fear, suspicions. She's probably been, burn, been burned before. So socially at the bottom of the food chain are the shepherds, but below them are objects or people that they use, they objectify to please themselves, uh, the prostitutes. So the queen's gentle inner murmur of self-reproach is just raging. She blames him for making her feel like a prostitute, the king. It's a Freudian slip, right? It's not him who's been sexually active, it's her. In Mesopotamian wedding songs, if you have been with us since the introduction, uh, we said that this is of that same genre. The Song of Songs is of the same genre as wedding songs and love songs. But in Mesopotamian wedding songs, that shepherd husband figured does indeed give the bride something to worry about, Um, and, and that's true. So, but having said that, this conversation is still quite inappropriate. Rude, demeaning to the king, his name, his character. I mean, most kings would have said, many kings would have said, off with her head, okay? First observation she's speaking to the faithful great lover king, and he's standing right there with immense love pouring out towards her as she is. But her brain's idols betray her. They refuse to let her see her real value, how she is seen by the king. Her midbrain's protective mechanisms just can't let her be loved. Nothing has hurt her more than relationships. So it doesn't create a good feeling in the queen's head. I mean, this pursuing King. So either she can turn to despising herself in shame and guilt and push people away, blame herself or likely others like her brothers, like the son, right? Uh, Or she could enter She's entering into this paranoia. Eugene Peterson coined a phrase, paranoid loneliness uh, as a euphemism for one of the works of the flesh in Galatians five, the paranoid, lonely, Will hurt others, push them away, act out in order to protect themselves. And the idea is that I'd better hurt them before they hurt me. It's all subconscious. Then when they react and pull away or say something against me, the paranoid lonely will blame them for the breakup and for loneliness and isolation. It's right. It's always about her. It's a good defensive strategy on the surface if there's real danger, but you know, there's consequences. She keeps pushing people away. She's going to be isolated. She's going to be alone, lonely, depressed. Listen, do you know what? which of the works of the flesh Peterson was speaking of when he coined the phrase paranoid loneliness? I love it. It's hatred. Hatred. It just makes sense. So now we see her first fear cycle reaction. Remember the fight, flight, freeze. She blames him. Right. She fights. She's accusing him of being unrighteous. Very ironical. It's a brain thing, not necessarily evil. Her fears turn to suspicion, which turns to false and appropriate accusations. And again, lesser kings would have her beheaded, but not this king. And a second observation is nobody is ever going to mistake this queen for a prostitute. See, others give her honor due to her title alone. The only one with an identity problem is her or me or you. She's mistaking herself or a prostitute, Freudian slip. This is the beloved bride of the great lover king. So this ranting is a reflection of her fractured identity. No judgment. We all do it. So let me come to her age. She is emotionally and relationally beat up. Nothing has hurt her more than relationships. She just cannot be. Her brain cannot be comfortable with the lover's love. It's a brain thing. Every love that she has ever known has betrayed her, used her, criticized her, hurt her, treated her like a prostitute, frankly. So this is where her head goes. And it's probably an exaggeration, but no, maybe not. Where there's smoke, there's fire. What what does she know about love? And matter of fact, much less the love of a righteous king. So there she is, fractured at a deep level, insecure, tentative, cautious, unsure of herself, emotionally afraid, terrified, constricted with double-strength duct tape, riddled with shame. Here, as in other places in the song, the woman expresses deep-set fear of the lover abandoning her. Maybe her suspicions are that his other interests will overshadow his love for her. So the king, the, the groom, speaks into her heart's primordial chaos. I think Genesis 1 Um Seeking self-esteem isn't going to help her much. She has someone who adores her as she is. She doesn't need to glam up, make herself look attractive. She just needs to accept and receive the king's love and adoration, and that's hard. That's a different problem altogether. Listen to the king. This is verse 7 and 8. Oh, most beautiful of all the women in the court, if you need to be reassured, if you're still afraid that in some deep, dark recess of my heart that I'm really lusting after someone else, then look again. Look thoroughly. My heart is an open book to you. There there is nothing clandestine going on. Come and see. It's as clear as sheep tracks in a muddy field. There's nothing hidden from you. Come and see again that my love is for you alone. Well, do you see what he did? He preached the stuff of the gospel to her, the core stuff. The king loves, the groom loves, God loves the unlovable. He reaches the unreachable. This love, his love is really good news, and it's the power to believe that we're lovable. It's his love that's actually the change agent. You know, I love you as you are, not what you do, what you've done. What you've not done, what you should do, or in spite of what's been done to you or how I feel, I love you. I chose you, selected you, named you as my bride. That is what you are now. That's the new and permanent measurement of your glory and worth, not what others think of you or what even you think of you. Wow. See, in spite of what she feels, the king does love her as she is. He has not left I As mean, matter of fact, he's, he's ever-present right, in the poetry, and it's a brain thing. He reminds her that she, he will never be difficult for her to find. She'll never be abandoned. Other people? Yeah, but not him. Look into my eyes, he says. There are clear, well-worn tracks for you to follow. No tricks, no games, no surprises, no betrayals. I'm not going to let you down. His love is <laughs> frighteningly different than anything she's ever experienced. Me too. It's way too much for her to fathom, to grasp, be too. So she needs a power to make her not only comfortable with theological concepts, but with grasping it, particularly this love. Okay. All right, here he is again. And he senses, I think, the anxiety in, in, her, in her gut and professes her attractiveness to him. He's not just faking it. This is not just a contract. He's saying that she is, she is attractive to him to him. She is not dark yet lovely. She is lovely. The most beautiful of the women. He loves her uglies, another way of looking at it. Here's verse 9. Hear me again. You're not unworthy at all of the position of royalty. When I consider you, I see a glorious, magnificent, gilded, thoroughbred mare, rightly identified with the greatest of kings. You're worthy to be displayed publicly, honored by all who honor the king. The king's love is not just communicated by his presence, he now begins to verbalize his love to her. Revelation, right? The king really turns on the charm, too. He describes the queen as a mare among chariots of Pharaoh. (laughs) Whoa, whoa, baby. I mean, all right, guys, take notes. If you're romantic, forget the dinner and jewelry and flour and candy. You know, just get her attention, get on your knees and say, hey, babe. When I look at you, I'm thinking horse flesh. <laughs> you know, on second thought, don't do that. Uh, beauty is very culturally specific. Apparently, it was a major compliment back then. Uh, not so much anymore. Here's Gladhill. The horse is a very sensual animal. No one can stand too close alongside a large, magnificent racehorse or a ceremonial parade horse without sensing something of the vibrancy, the thrill of so much potential power hidden within those large, glistening flanks. Uh, side note, gentlemen, uh, ladies, don't use the term large, glistening flanks either. That doesn't go well. All right. Are you with me? Back to Gledhill. There is a sense of awe at the aesthetics of such power. Our lover senses a similar power within his girl. Wow. That's good. A kind of animal magnetism, and it unsettles him by her sheer physical proximity. So, dear, when I was watching Flightline win the Breeders' Cup classic, I just thought of you. Um, By the way, one commentator speculated, interestingly, that the key here is the word mare. Horses used in warfare were almost always stallions. The presence of a mare, particularly a mare in heat in front of all of those stallions, you can imagine it would be pretty disruptive. And in 1298 BC, there was a battle between Egypt and Kadesh, and apparently the prince of Kadesh released a a mare in heat uh, into the battle to run among Pharaoh's horses, and they, it almost turned the war. Uh, some Egyptian soldier ran after the mare and killed her, to end the distraction. I mean, it was apparently very, very powerful, and some people think that's what the poet's referring to, meaning, I I can't do business. (laughs) With you in the room, I can't think straight. Either way, you cut it. The, The great lover king, the groom, is stating that he is turned on by this woman. It's unlikely, but that's the case. Imagine for a second how she hears this, or how you might hear it. Does she believe it? Or is she conditioned not to believe it, no matter what? So when I say God loves you, can we put all this together, his love is higher and greater than anything we've ever experienced. And it's unsettling. Well, when you walked into the place where you're listening to this podcast, did you really believe that God felt this way about you? Not just an adherence to a written confession of faith? I mean... Are you feeling it this week? This is what Christ purchased, not perfectly, that's heaven. But now that, that I've reminded you of the stunning otherworldly nature of it, is—is is, are you dysregulated a little bit? Aspects of this have to be calming and terrifying, right? Both at the same time. The God of all the universe, the ultimate perfectionist, worthy of only the righteous in his audience and his service, has picked the likes of you to be with him, closest to him. No matter how other people have treated you, this is how God feels towards you. How could any of us ever feel comfortable? Have you ever been in a place or group where you feel like you're the wrong person, the wrong place, the wrong time? That's what the queen is feeling. Um, It's naturally uncomfortable to non-narcissists. By the way, if you're a narcissist, welcome. Welcome. Yet the the groom's attention was strictly on her. And why? You know, just look at you, queen. Verse 10, all of the queen's jewelry most naturally adorns your face. It would look awkward on any other face. I will bring you more jewels so that there could be no doubt who you are. Who is this groom? And it's still she can't hear it. The fractures are so real. The fears are so deep. She's heard this line before, probably, from other men. So no doubt, fear-based subconscious behavior kicks in, fight, flight, or freeze. Her brain idols, all of them have measured her year after year and have given her an F-, minus. but the groom has also measured her and gives her an A+. And who is she going to believe 10 times out of 10? well not the A+. Plus. How could she ever trust it? It hurt too much last time when the that guy said that. She needs a transforming power that gives her the capability, the capacity to believe the unbelievable. And that's what we refer to as faith, God-sourced faith. You can't fake this. It's from God. So this is us. How we respond too often to God's love is in unbelief and lack of faith. We need faith. None of us... Our brain's right. None of us deserve it. Yet, that doesn't matter. None of us are loved any less or any more. It's uncomfortable, frightening, and so wonderful at the same time. So think of it as a relational roller coaster. Well, the queen's brain is going to push back. Fight, flight, freeze. Man, she's fighting. Um, Verse 12. Oh, my heart, see how the king surrounds you. He's drawn near. He's intimately surrounding me, embracing me, caressing me. My heart swells and pounds. It aches in response. My temperature rises, igniting my fragrant aroma. It becomes entwined with his aroma. He is as close to me as my perfume pouch that hangs between my breasts. I'm entranced by his scent, choice, intoxicating smells, nard, myrrh, henna ravishing me, capturing me in the moment. See, no matter what has been physically going on before now, obvious, the king has embraced his struggling beloved. There's some difficult Hebrew here. The reference to the king's table in some translations is a hapax legomenon, meaning it's the only place in the Hebrew we have this word, so we have to figure out what it means, and similar words. And I think the the best picture is a verb of surrounding. The king is surrounding her, right? You get the imagery, the picture, I have to spell it out, She's becoming caught up in a moment, in spite of her baggage, in a miraculous rescue. She's in this intimate embrace of the, dynamic embrace of the king. Intimacy. She regulates a little. She emotionally, ah, oh, the transforming love of the great lover king. So... Before, picture the bride fidgeting, dysregulated, traumatized, scared, paranoid, but then there's a dramatic shift within her and she abandons those boundaries and those reactionary mechanisms and she gets thrown into the romance. It's a miracle, right? It's not a choice. It's a miracle empowered by the loving gaze of the king. It's fireworks beyond her dreams, a sense of meaning and value and worth and beauty and substance. For moments... Her fears are dispelled by this perfect love that cast out fear, right? First John four eighteen, and all the survival strategies that haven't served her well, for a moment they're gone. The the strongholds are te- torn down for a little bit. Okay, we'll check it out. The very next thing she does in his embrace, her words, her thoughts, it's worship. That's what worship in spirit and truth truly is. It's it's a response when we finally are caught up in the love of God. Yeah. Well, we're gonna take another break for sponsors before we get to the Hinaki. See you in a moment. Welcome back. Um, this first movement, movement number one, is is constructed as a poetic chiasm. So picture a pyramid, and at the pinnacle of the pyramid is a pinnacle verse. The driving point of the whole movement, this is the point. this is the what the poet wants to communicate to the unlikely brides, Hanak Yafa, Riati, hanak Yafa look, look, can't you see, beautiful, you, my beloved, look, can't you see, beautiful, your eyes are like precious doves, well. Wow. Like I said, it's guttural, repetitive. It's not even a full sentence. The groom's breath is taken away. He can't even form a sentence. Doves, I, look, I've spent some time just research looking at dove eyes. I don't get it. They're black and beady. But then the point would have was that she would have understood that. That would have been stunning for her. That would have taken her breath away. Um, listen, just for fun. I'm going to do a little shopping training for husbands, all right? So, uh, guys, what do you say in those awkward times when your wife comes out in an outfit and asks, hey, how does it look? (laughs) Uh, All right, here you go. Write this down, okay? Wow, dear, the color brings out your eyes. It accentuates your curves and yet has a slimming effect on you. It makes you look 10 years younger. All right, you got that? <laughs> Play uh, memorize that because it happens way too often. Back then, uh during the ancient Near East times, it was about horse thighs and dove eyes. So, queen beloved men and women, are you aware of this cure for shame, for self-hatred? Um momentary, no doubt, but hey, still a power that can make you, can make you, not help, make you feel loved by God. This week, did you look at yourself and to some degree hate what you saw? The uglies, right? Maybe you've done something horrific or disgraceful. Maybe uh, maybe you can only see that person and not beyond that choice or path or failure. Well, listen, there is a power that can begin to diminish your self-hatred. It's faith, God-sourced. You can access faith, power from God, Ephesians 3, to begin to hear so that the power can make you begin to hear God's exclamation of his devotion and love for you as you are. It's almost hard to say. It's so unbelievable. You couldn't be any more out of sync than you are with him, and yet he loves you. Well, the queen can't handle it. She should just plunge in, but her brain prevents her from doing so. You too. Me too. And so she deflects. Verse 16. How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. Verdant or green or natural nature. See, the image is that they're poetic is that they're lying in some decorated formal bed, Um, But I think it's better a secluded wooded glade somewhere, a metaphorical garden, that safe, intimate place where she is in his adoring arms, where she can be without mask or need for mask. Verse 17, the beams of our house are cedars or rafters or firs. So think marriage chamber. Um, Again, a place of, of secure intimacy, no worries, only loving and being loved. It's what we're chosing for and looking for in all the wrong places, and far too often our critical inner voice doesn't think we deserve. Chapter 2, verse 1, I am the Rose of Sharon, Lily of the Valleys. It's a poetic merism. Sharon means just plains, you know, uh, like like flat areas. So she's saying, you know, I'm nothing to write home about. I'm a wild flower in the fields and the valleys. Uh, Nothing carefully groomed. I remember in one place I lived, my backyard was riddled with dandelions. I mean, everywhere. You couldn't kill them. They just grew back and multiplied. So they were pretty, but a hassle. You know, dark yet lovely. Verse 2. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. Man, I love this. The king defers. That's the king. He goes, oh, no, babe, you are a kashoshana among the hachochim. I love the poetry. Ladies, which would you prefer to be, a kashoshana or a Hachochim? I mean, you can feel the barbs on the thorns, right? Verse 3. Uh, this is the queen. Like an apple tree among the trees. This banter is crazed, right? So now she's deflecting like An apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. You get a sense that he's used to protective banter, right? It keeps her from being intimate, risk. Shade is intimacy protection. This is different than any of the other relationships that hurt her, if she could only really buy into her own words. Uh, and nothing has hurt her or more, or us more, the relationship. But this embrace feels different. She can, there, there's protective boundaries a little bit, and she can move out. What she's saying is the king is a man among boys. Remember I said what, the, what God did in the Song of Songs was to incarnate already familiar and common love ditties? Well, here is a Sumerian marriage poem that feels similar. You tell me. Um, and, and the groom is called the honeyman, the sweet one, right? The sweetness. Uh, and, and the, the honeyman sweetens the bride. So here we go. The honeyman, the honeyman sweetens me ever, um, says the bride to the groom. Bridegroom, dear to my heart, goodly is your pleasure, honey sweet. Lion, dear to my heart, goodly is your pleasure, honey sweet. Well, the queen and the, the bride in the Song of Songs says he's taken me to the banquet hall and his banner over me is love. Very familiar. Well, for the theme of the text, she's proclaiming, she's saying, that the lover has brought her to his banquet hall. Uh, could mean a bunch of things poetically. Maybe he's publicly set his imprimatur on her publicly. He's showing that, that he's with her, she's with him. There's security in that, permanence in that. It's, it's a wonderful mystery of God's love that he would do that in the heavenlies, proclaim that I'm his to the, to the angels, to Satan even. He loves me publicly. He proclaims me publicly. Nothing is done in secret. My doubts, there are still many, but I only need to look to the tracks of the shepherds, right? Strengthen me with raisins, the queen says. Refresh me with apples, for I'm faint with love. His left arm is under my head. His right arm embraces me, right? So they're in a sexual position. Verse seven, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field. Do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires, Uh, verses four to seven of chapter two. My uh, expanded translation, is this really true? He seated me next to him at a grand banquet hall. He has boldly and publicly proclaimed his love for me alone. This is not some cruel joke. I still can't understand it. It doesn't compute. It doesn't fit my experience with love. It's too much for me to believe Far too wonderful, far too dangerous, far beyond my wildest dreams. Somebody, get me something sweet. I'm about to faint with love. It's happened. I've succumbed to my lover's embrace. I am swept away into his heart. We're united in a, a lover's embrace. For a moment, we're one. For a moment, I am the queen indeed. I can see that I am the beloved, at least for right now. Amazing love, how can it be? Daughters, this love is a dangerous, devouring animal not to be taken lightly. Settle for no counterfeit. No substitute to this love. Don't mess with it unless it so desires. What does this obscure verse refer to? The the, uh, dangerous, devouring animal? Well, we're going to look at that more next time. By the way, also in the next next, uh, podcast, I'm going to do something very special. I mean, I hope you think it's special. I'm going to read... My interpretive version of movement number one from the Song of Songs novella. It's a book that I wrote along with uh, Colleen Peppers, uh, a companion book to Kiss of God. It's it's the screenplay, the interpretive modern screenplay of what's going on in the poetry, and I think you will enjoy it. I think you'll love it. All right. Hey, listen, your support is important to me. Let me know what you're getting out of this series, bill at gospel-app.com. And please, I'm asking you to follow this podcast intentionally wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe it's on Omri or Apple or Podchaser, iHeart, Stitcher, Buzzsprout, Spotify, Resonate, or one of the so many other uh, platforms. And I want to thank you ahead of time. And again, if you can, for instance, I know you can do this on Apple and Podchaser. If you, you can give this podcast a ranking and a review, you know, what does it mean to you? What, what grabbed you? What, uh, why would you recommend this to others? And it, you, you just might be encouraging someone else to listen. I mean, I put those reviews on my uh, pod page, gospelrant.com. And as always... You can let me know directly what you're thinking at bill at gospel-app.com. If you have any questions or concerns, bill at gospel-app.com. We'll see you on the next podcast. Take heart, child of God.